Great. Well, good morning again. Uh, we conclude this week our study of the genealogy of Jesus. We've been looking at the mothers of Jesus, discovering that the gospel writers don't shy away from the more shady, darker stories in Jesus' lineage. In fact, they, they highlight them. Uh, we've been discovering that our Savior has the blood of sinners coursing through his veins. And Matthew says, you shall call him Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. And we've been discovering how he saves people like Tamar and Rahab and Ruth. And today we'll discover how salvation comes to Mary and through Mary to us. All right, this morning, scripture reading is Matthew 1, 1 through 17. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram, and Ram the father of Amminadab, and Amminadab the father of Nashon, and Nashon the father of Solomon, and Solomon the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of David the king. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah, and Solomon the father of Rehoboam, and Rehoboam the father of Abijah, and Abijah the father of Asaph, and Asaph the father of, Je of Jehoshaphat, and Jehoshaphat the father of Joram, and Joram the father of Uzziah, and Uzziah the father of Jotham, and Jotham the father of Ahaz, and Ahaz the father of Hezekiah, and Hezekiah the father of Manasseh, and Manasseh the father of Amos and Amos the father of Josiah, and Josiah the father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. And after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel, and Shealtiel the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel the father of Abiud, and Abiud the father of Eliakim, and Eliakim the father of Azor, and Azor the father of Zadok, and Zadok the father of Achim, and Achim the father of Eliud, and Eliud the father of Eleazar, and Eleazar the father of Mathim, and Mathim the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations, and from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations, and from the deportation to Babylon, to Christ, 14 generations. This is the word of the Lord. God. Thank you, Erin. She had the unlucky draw. <laughs> Let's pray. Father, we are grateful for this, your word, and we ask that you'd give us eyes to see, ears to hear, hearts to understand, and wills to obey, that we might see Jesus high and lifted up. For his sake, we pray. Amen. Well, growing up, sports was my life. 
In middle school, I played a sport every single season, and our school had very short sports seasons. So I played flag football, racquetball, volleyball, basketball, wrestling track, baseball, and cross country. Now that last one is kind of like the old Sesame Street song. One of these things is not like the other. One of these things just doesn't belong. Look at me. I'm not a cross country runner. My dad was, and so I think maybe some way to please him or honor his legacy, I should run cross country. But I was horrible at it. It was painful to watch me run. Then in high school, I narrowed it down and played three sports, football, basketball, and baseball. During football season, I'd come home, grab a quick bite to eat, and then go off to the gym to play basketball. During basketball season, come home, grab a bite to eat, go lift weights. During baseball season, I'd do a combination of the two. During summer, it was sports from early in the morning till late at night. I say this as a confession. In college, I played football, but when I wasn't playing other sport, or when I wasn't practicing for football, I would do other sports like play basketball in the rec room or racquetball. Throughout my years of playing sports, there was one refrain that kept echoing in my ears over and over and over again. This refrain that unfortunately I listened to. It went something like this. You have what it takes to make a name for yourself. Or if you keep at it, you'll make a name for yourself. Or if you continue to work hard, maybe you'll make it to the next level. And maybe at the next level, you'll make a name for yourself. Throughout my years of playing sports, that's what was emphasized. Make a name for yourself. Play to make a name for yourself. Play to make a name that somebody would remember. Play to make a name that one day somebody might even Google. Make a name for yourself. Friends, this is a refrain that happens not only in the world of sports, but it happens in every realm of life, in education, in business, in relationships, we're tempted to engage these things in order that somebody might remember us. Sometimes this way of thinking is expressed blatantly and sometimes it's more hidden. But it's everywhere in our culture and it's even prevalent within the Christian community. And we're sensitive to this way of thinking, especially as another year draws to a close and we begin to thinking about 2019 and have high hopes and aspirations for what next year might look like as we want to grow and change and mature, as we want to progress and advance as people. Athletes are under tremendous pressure to outperform other athletes. Students are under pressure to perform better than other students. Artists are under pressure to be more creative. Business people are under pressure to grow their businesses and outperform their competitors. Mothers are under pressure to have their homes organized, to have their kids focused and disciplined. Pastors are under pressure to have people listen to them. Every culture and every era has placed certain pressures on people. In ancient Israel, it was no different. There were cultural pressures that were placed upon them. And there especially was the pressure, as we've been learning and discovering through the genealogy of Jesus, to have children. If you're able to have children, there was pressure to have male children. 
An Israelite husband was under the pressure to provide for his family in such a way that he could ensure that the name of the family would continue. Having children and having sons in particular was of utmost importance in the ancient world. Every culture throughout history places pressures on people to achieve and perform and succeed. All of us in some way experience the pressure of leaving a mark, having a legacy, making a name for ourselves. Friends, it's the air that you and I breathe. It's the air that our children breathe. It's the world that we live in. David Letterman was somebody who wanted to be remembered. He's now been retired for a few years. But at the height of his career, David Letterman said this in an interview. He said, every night, you're trying to prove your self-worth. You want to be the absolute best, wittiest, smartest, most charming, best-smelling version of yourself. If I can make people have a high regard for me when I'm finished, it makes me feel like I'm a whole person. If I come short of that, I'm not happy. How things go for me every night is how I feel about myself for the next 24 hours. Letterman's struggle is our struggle. Too often, we place pressure upon ourselves to be the best, the wittiest, the smartest, the most charming people. We take ourselves way too seriously, and we put burdens on our backs that we were not meant to carry. This way of viewing the world is particularly acute in living in a place like Austin. Austin's an energetic, creative, entrepreneurial city. Different business magazines have named Austin the most, um, uh, now I lost the word that I'm trying to think of, the most aspirational city in America today. There's so much that is beautiful and right and good about living in this place, but there's also so much that is broken. And some of that brokenness comes in the form of the pressure to always perform, to always be our best, to leave our mark to make a name for ourselves. You're always trying to distinguish yourself. You're always trying to set yourself apart. You're always trying to prove your self-worth or hope that people have a high regard for you, that you'll make a name for yourself. But friends, if that's the way that you live, if that's your philosophy of life, you'll never, ever live up to your expectations for yourself or that others have upon you. Living under this kind of pressure, living under this kind of story is dangerous and monstrous. So is there another way to think about life? Is there a way to think about living in this world that is more beautiful, more restorative than just making a name for ourselves? Well, there is. And strangely, the genealogy of Jesus gives us the answer. You see, as I mentioned, the Old Testament was concerned with names and man's ability to continue his name. Adam is created by God to live forever in communion with God. But because of his sin, because of his rebellion, Adam died. God, in his mercy and his grace, 
allowed Adam to have a son. And through his son, Adam's name somehow in some way continued. That's why genealogies were so important in that ancient culture, is it connected you to your father, and it connected you to your father's father. It was a way to continue the family name and in some way remember your father who had died. And that's why so many Old Testament narratives and some of these narratives that we've been looking at together place such a huge importance on continuing the family name. For example, the book of Genesis is structured around 10 genealogies. And these genealogies are important in helping us to see that Adam's race continues. There, were, there will be sons and daughters born into the world that God will come to rescue and redeem the world through Adam's children. Many of us, as we think about next year, maybe have plans to begin to read the Bible a little bit more. And so we say, okay, I'm going to start in Genesis, and I'm going to try to read the Bible in an entire year. And so January 1, we get started, and things are going pretty well. We get through Genesis, and... Um, we're off to a good start. Exodus is exciting, and uh, especially the first 20 chapters of Exodus are really engaging for us. Then we get to Leviticus, and Leviticus, well, it's just Leviticus. If we're honest, many of us say, oh, I'll just skip Leviticus. We'll, we'll get over this. Then we go to Numbers, and when we get to Numbers, it's where many of us stop because we start to read all of these names that Aaron just read for us. Names like Shelmuliel, Zerushadai, Amishidai. We get bogged down by one genealogy after another. We get bored with these names that we can't pronounce and we say, what in the world are they doing in the Bible? And what in the world am I supposed to do with one person begatting another person begatting another person. But friends, genealogies are gifts to us because genealogies show us that God is continuing to bring life to his world. That sin has not destroyed the life that God intended for his world. Genealogies are evidence of God's abundant grace. That's why the Old Testament is full of them, to show us that God is bringing life to his world. But then in the New Testament, something strange happens. Genealogies stop. Names cease to be essential. The need for a man to continue his name to have a name that his sons can remember goes away. We read the last genealogy in the Bible together this morning. Genealogies stop with Jesus. Why? Why after so many genealogies over and over and over again in the Old Testament do they stop with the birth of Jesus? Friends, it's because... Jesus, the true man, the true Adam, the true name has arrived. There is no greater name. When he died, 
His name died with him. When he died, all the need to have a genealogy died with him. Jesus lives, and so does his name. His name is a name that is above all names. His name is a great and the final and last name. His name is Jesus. His name is Lord. His name is Savior. His name is King. There is no other name. That's why there are no more genealogies. Jesus' birth is unique. He's the one who will restore God's world and bring life to God's world. He's the one who, through the birth, will bring the Holy Spirit to the world. God himself comes down, humbling himself to restore all creation in his birth. The birth of Jesus, then, is salvation for the world. It's the gift of God for the world. Through the birth of Jesus, the whole world is going to be remade and restored. What God gave to Mary in her womb will be the continuation of life, not just for her, but for the world, for us, for all who believe in her child, Jesus. Because of Jesus, the true name has arrived. And so what this means for us is that you and I, today, this week, this month, this year, every day of our lives, have a choice to make. Either we're going to live in order to make a name for ourselves, or we're going to receive the name that has been given to us. Either we'll get caught up in the gift of having a name that has been given to us, or we're going to get caught up in trying to continually prove our self-worth, prove that we have a name that somebody should remember. And friends, if you belong to Jesus by faith, then the greatest gift that can be offered to you is yours, that you have a name. You have an identity. Your name is Christian. You are little Christ. Your life is hid in Christ. Friends, in baptism, we take on the name of Jesus. In baptism, we become part of his family so that our earthly families don't have dominion and power and authority over us. We become part of his name, of his family. In baptism, we realize that we don't have to make a name for ourselves. We have been given a name. And our job is to magnify the name that has been given to us. Our role is to live in light of the name that marks us. So friends, there's really only one of two ways to live in the world. First is make a name for yourself. Leave your mark. Leave your legacy. There are thousands of ways that our culture tells us to do that. And the second is receive a name. Receive a name that's been given to you. The name that's above every name. The name that alone is life-giving. Receive the name of Christian. Receive all that Jesus is and all that Jesus has done for you. So let's think about a few ways that we can apply this to our lives. The first is this. In Jesus, you have a Savior. If you take on the name of Jesus, if you take on the name Christian, you have a Savior in him. 
we've been discovering that Matthew tells us after the genealogy that we shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. If you belong to Jesus, you have a Savior. You have a Redeemer. You have somebody who is willing and able to forgive you when you mess up. Friends, a Savior changes everything. Without a Savior, you've got to make a name for yourself. Without a Savior, everyone else in your life is somebody that you have to show that you're better than. Without a Savior, a spouse isn't a friend to serve, but a competitor to master. It's someone you're constantly trying to convince that you're right and that he or she is wrong. Without a Savior, a friend is not somebody to learn from, but somebody to compare yourself to. Without a Savior, a school isn't a place where you go to learn, but where you go to compete against your peers. Without a Savior, a job isn't a place where you go to graciously use the gifts for the good of others, but a place where you'll either conquer or be conquered. Without a Savior, all of our relationships turn monstrous. Without a Savior, we live to make a name for ourselves. But in Jesus, we have a Savior, and that changes everything. Second, through Jesus, we become servants. If you belong to Jesus, if you take his name upon yourself, if you receive the gift of his name, And second, you become a true servant. And we see this especially in the life of Mary. Not much after the early chapters of the Gospels do we learn about the life of Mary. Not much is said about the life of Mary. She's more quiet. She's overlooked. And that's the point. Mary got it. The Gospel writers got it. Mary understood that in Jesus the true name had arrived In Jesus, the true son had come into the world. In Jesus, genealogies have stopped. And Mary was faithful and obedient to serve her son and her Lord. Mary didn't live in a way where she tried to make her own name important or Joseph's name important. Rather, Mary and Joseph got caught up in the story of their son, the name that is above all names. And they became servants of him. And through Jesus, as we take his name upon ourselves, we, like them, become servants as well. Because a servant doesn't see his or her spouse as competition. A servant doesn't see his peers and friends as competition. A servant doesn't view his workplace as competition. Rather, all of these places and all of these relationships are transformed where we give ourselves away because we belong to Jesus, the one who gave himself away for us. We get caught up into his story and his name. We become like him, becoming a servant to others. Well, friends, in college, after my redshirt year of playing football, One of my coaches sat me down and had the make a name for yourself speech. He told me that he and the other coaches had all been talking and that they were all convinced that I had what it takes to make it to the next level. He said that he was going to enjoy watching me play on Sundays. This encouraged me, this challenged me to get bigger, faster, stronger. 
I had interest from several NFL teams. I had some tryouts lined up. I had some real opportunities, I thought. Then one night as I was running and training out on the track, I tore my hamstring. I was in pain and I was in agony. I was angry and frustrated because I knew that this was the end of my playing days. I'd been so disciplined. I thought that I had worked hard enough. I thought that I was good enough. I had friends who were being drafted that I was bigger and faster and stronger than. I thought to myself that I deserved to make it to the next level. And then lying there on the track, it hit me. It hit me like a ton of bricks. I told my coach that I played football as a Christian for the honor and the glory of the name of Jesus. But in reality, I realized that I was doing it for myself. I've been playing all those years, working all those years for me. I've been trying to make a name for myself. And it's taken me years to understand this, and it's still a struggle for me. In my own journey, in some small ways, I've come to learn that to make a name for yourself is futility. But to receive a name, to receive the name Jesus, is freeing and absolutely liberating. I've come to realize that when genealogies stop, we receive the life of Jesus, the name that is above all names. True joy and true peace is found in living for the sake of his name. So friends, this morning, don't live to make a name for yourself. It's futile. It's overwhelming. Rather, receive the name of Jesus. Receive the name that has been given to you, Christian. Life is about him he alone is your name. He alone is your identity. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we ask that you would forgive us for all the ways that we selfishly and stupidly try to make names for ourselves in our relationships, in our work lives, in our communities, even in this church. And rather, we pray that we would receive the name Jesus. And in receiving his name, that we would realize that we have a Savior. We have somebody who covers our faults, covers our blemishes, somebody who really and truly forgives us. And that in Jesus, we become servants. We can take the low place. We can give ourselves away. Because we belong to the God who has given everything for us. So we pray, Lord, that you'd give us now your Holy Spirit, and in receiving your Holy Spirit, that we might live for you and not ourselves this week. For Christ's sake we pray. Amen.